You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. You are listening to the Uncorking a Story podcast, and I am your host, Michael Carlin. Today's guest is Andy Greenfield, an accomplished entrepreneur who started and sold two leading market research businesses, Greenfield Consulting and Greenfield Online. I met Andy when I was a 22-year-old know-it-all kid in 1996, working in the new field of internet marketing. When I was introduced to his company, Greenfield Consulting, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to do what Andy's guys did, help clients solve marketing problems by better understanding insights into the consumer. There was only one problem. I was too damn young for that job. Andy had a hiring model that went something like this. Hire people who are smarter than you or hire people with muscles that you don't have. And at the time, I was nowhere seasoned enough to be smarter than Andy or any of his employees who all came from prestigious advertising pedigrees. I mean, Andy hired people who ran big accounts at advertising agencies. He had the guy that ran Coca-Cola. He had the guy that ran Apple Computer. And he had guys who ran, you know, other big blue chip brands. And when I was 22, I knew nothing about the business. Over the years, Andy and I kept in touch. And I wanted to interview him for this podcast because I believe he's got such an inspiring story to tell. Listen up as you hear about his early days moving around the world as the son of an Air Force doctor and about his early businesses setting up lights for residential tennis courts and and even building houses in Colorado. If you stick with it, you'll even hear about his run-in with one of New York City's infamous five families. Andy's story is a story of courage, it's a story of perseverance, and above all else, it's the story of curiosity. I hope you enjoy this interview, and I do look forward to your comments. Please send any comments you may have to Mike at uncorkingastory.com. And now, Andy Greenfield. Well, yeah, well, why don't we start from, why don't we start from the beginning where, where it all began? So kind of what, where, where did Andy Greenfield grow up and, and what, what was he kind of surrounded by in his formative years? Sure. Well, I, I moved around as a little kid. My dad was a doctor in the Air Force and ended up living in Japan and then came back and lived for a little while in New Jersey, but really grew up in western Connecticut. Uh, and my parents still live in the same house uh, that we moved to when I was five. Wow. So that's a long time ago. That's Danbury, Connecticut. Now your parents are still together, still married? Still married, still alive, 86 and 89. Wow, that's uh, that's tremendous. Mine are um, a little younger. Mine are in their mid-80s, well, 83 and 82, and been married for, I think this year's going to be 60 years, and that, that just doesn't happen anymore. No, no. I, I, I confess I'm not going to hit that record. <laughs> <laughs> not unless I live a lot, lot longer. Right. right. Well, they, they, you know, they, they, people got married much younger in that generation. 
true. Indeed. The, um, you know, the town I grew up in, Danbury, was a very, very, even though it's part of Fairfield County, it was a very basic, blue-collar, very diverse community. I actually went to public school in uh, an area that was surrounded by low-income housing projects. I, I didn't realize it at the time. It was a school called Mill Ridge. <clears throat> so we're surrounded with a very, very... Um, blue-collar, regular group of folks, nothing too fancy. And the other day I was explaining to my daughters because we were talking about money and wealth and stuff like that, and I said, you know, when we were growing up, everyone seemed the same to us. The only thing we knew when it came to money is that my friend Gary Hopper's father had a Cadillac, (laughs) and that was the only – and he lived in a basic house, but – he had a Cadillac, and that was a symbol of somebody had money. Now, you you mentioned kind of growing up, and and it sounds like you were an Air Force kid. What what impact did that have, or, or do you think that had on on your life? Where you know you're living internationally, moving around quite a bit. What do you think that that did for you? Um, I. I'm not. I'd like to give a, a cogent, insightful <laughs> uh, answer that painted uh, what was going to happen in the future. I think the only thing it made uh, contributed, I think, which was an important contribution, is curiosity. Uh, being places that were different, around people who were different, uh, and having a father who. Uh, believed in the Socratic method. He used to say, anything you want to find out, you can usually find out by asking. And so I was uh, very, from the time I was a little kid, very comfortable asking questions, probing, peeling back layers. And I confess I still do the same thing. I was doing it as recently as today on the chairlift. (laughs) The... um... You know, it's interesting you use the word curiosity. Over the uh, the, the holiday break, I read um, Brian Grazer uh, has a new book out, and it's it's just completely focused on curiosity. And he kind of makes the point that in, in our culture, sometimes that word is not used in a positive sense. You know, where you know people teachers would accuse people of being too curious. But I think for for somebody who makes his who made a living in in the field that we make our living in, or that you used to make your living in anyway, curiosity is like the number one attribute I would look for in in anybody trying to get into that business. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I find it a uh, important on many many levels. You know, we sometimes talk about uh, categorizing people. And this is broad categories. Some folks you can hang around with for three or four hours, and they literally will not ask you one question about yourself. <clears throat> and I always find that stunning uh, because, you know, when I enter a room with other people, I already know about myself. I don't really care to sit and, you know, learn more about myself. I'm much more interested in what their story is. Yeah. Uh, and that, to me, you know, the curiosity thing is something I think it's really important to model for kids and model for colleagues. Uh, and regrettably, though, I think it's something that 
you may not be able to teach. Yeah, I think I think there is definitely sort of a personality characteristic there that um, you're right. You can't teach somebody to to be. You can teach them to ask questions, but you can't teach them to be like innately curious. Yeah. So Andy Greenfield is a, uh, a a little kid living in Danbury, Connecticut. He's very curious. What, what were some things that shaped your shaped your younger your younger years? Um, I had a my dad was a doctor, and I loved to teach, and I was uh, very interested in you know anatomy physiology, stuff like that, even as a little kid. So he would uh, he would take me to the hospital. I would get to see you know, operations. Um, I would go outside. He'd wake me at 3 in the morning. We'd go out and look at the creatures crawling around. So I was blessed to have a father who loved to teach and uh, <clears throat> spent a great deal of time with me and I'll go back to the Socratic method. Um, he was he was very good at when I would ask him a question, he would respond with a question. And he used to say, "The answer lies within you, my son." So he he forced me to continually think through. Uh, and he also taught me at a very early age how to argue, and not in a, a bad sense, but in a more of a philosophical sense, how to argue for a point of view how to understand uh, why somebody is saying what they're saying, how to sort of peel back layers, understand the presuppositions that their their views rested on. I, I never understood what was really going on when I was a little kid, but that's part of what led me to uh, pursue philosophy in college and graduate school. Uh, well, I ended up being for a short period of time a philosophy teacher. So you, um, your your father had a. It sounds like he had a, a major impact on on your life. What about your What about your mother? What What What, what did she do? <clears throat> My mother was a drug and alcohol counselor, a marriage counselor. Uh, she was immensely gregarious, outgoing, curious. You know, I grew up with. Our kitchen table continually filled with neighborhood kids, neighborhood parents coming over to uh, share share their problems with my mother who would give them advice. So she's the kind of person who would walk into a room and you will learn nothing about her, but she will know everything about you. (laughs) So so I, I... she had a very, very strong influence. You know, part of it was a curiosity, part of it was engaging people. Uh, and both of my parents uh, were very, very, um, and, and they were not um, explicit about this, but implicitly they never drew lines between black, white, rich, poor, old, young. Uh, everybody was pretty much the same. So my father would spend as much time talking to the guy fixing his car as he would to the neurosurgeon who was operating on one of his patients. So in an interesting way, that was 
really helpful uh, for a career as a focus group moderator because, as you know, we end up sitting in a room full of people who, some of whom have a high school education, some of whom have gone to a lot of postgraduate school, some of whom are very sophisticated, some of whom are very, very basic. And being able to converse comfortably and naturally and not have any distance between you and them was uh, uh, very, very helpful. Well, you know, and you're, you're also talking about, and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make the assumption that this was a period of time where, you know, your, your father's attitude towards other people was probably more the exception than it was the rule. Um, just thinking about what the, the culture in our country was during, during that time. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, and it's, uh, you know, part of it is he came from pretty humble beginnings. And uh, we never, you know, we literally never thought one way or the other about money, about where somebody came from. And not, you know, for uh, sort of chest-beating, political, holier-than-thou reasons, but it's just stuff that never kind of occurred to us. And like, I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, I'm a father and I've got three, we, we have triplets. I don't know if you knew that, but we have, uh, we have three 13 year olds currently residing in the Carlin residence. Wow. <laughs> and you know, one of the things that I, that I'm really, and you know, we live in a, you know, Stanford, Connecticut, it's in pretty upper, upper middle class where we are. And what, what I worry about is them letting it kind of get to their, get to their head a bit, you know, and, and, and I don't want them to, to grow up thinking that they're better than anybody else just because we may have things that other people don't have. How did, how did you deal with that with your, with your own daughters? Because, you know, and we'll get to your career in a minute, but, you know, just a foreshadow, very successful. So how do you, how do you balance that, balance the sort of material success, um, with kind of raising kids and making sure that they don't become, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, <clears throat> it's something that, uh, you know, I thought a lot about. Um, and, and I guess the way, and I dealt with it fairly purposefully in a couple of ways. Uh, we, you know, our, our kids went to, you know, I was a public school kid. Now, we didn't even know what private schools were growing up. <clears throat> Every now and then when we ran into somebody who's, you know, went away to a private school. We thought it was because their parents didn't like them. So when we moved to Connecticut from New York City into Norwalk, it was a period of time when the schools were really bad in Norwalk, uh, really bad. The class sizes were you know, 36, 38. It was, you know, not in good shape. Norwalk's much better now. So I looked around. I said, look, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want my kids in that situation because it's not conducive to a good education. So I gritted my teeth and we sent them to a private school. Again, you know, contrary to everything I'd grown up with. And it was in Stanford. It was a wonderful place called King Low Haywood. Uh, I mentioned this, though, because there were some kids at that school who lived in cozy 17, 18,000 square foot homes. You know, after all, there were two children there, so you do need to have uh, 20 bedrooms. Uh, 
<laughs> so my kids would come back to our little ranch house, which is, I don't know, 2,500 square feet, and from a play date, and they'd go, gosh, Dad, our, our house is so small. And I'd go, really? I'd say, let's, let's go into this room. I'd say, when was the last time you were in this room? They'd go, well, we haven't been in that room for a long time. i say, so we even have rooms we don't use, so why would you need anything bigger? And they'd go, ah, okay. I mention this because they were exposed to some pretty extreme wealth uh, growing up in, in the form of their friends. So the way we attacked this was two or threefold. The first thing was that they saw how we lived, which was, you know, a comfortable life, but pretty basic. Uh, and the people who we spent time with, which was a wide range of people from folks who were you know, laborers to folks who were you know, titans of industry, and that we treated everybody the same. And we were very clear that that was important to do, that nobody was better than anybody else. And again, this is not a chest-pounding thing. It's just that I thought that this was really important for them to understand and appreciate if they were going to be successful in life. Also, it came probably from, <clears throat> if, if, uh, if I'm really being candid, growing up a little bit on the other side of the tracks, having to deal with folks from the other part of Fairfield County who thought they were a little bit more special because they didn't either inherited wealth or were born in a uh, certain kind of family. The next thing we did is I've had a foundation for about 25 years that gives scholarships to kids who have overcome extreme adversity. And I mention this because what I started doing very early on when my, my girls are now 24 and 25, when they were probably eight or nine years old, I would have them read the applications for the scholarships uh, with me and help me select the candidates who are going to receive them. And it's one thing for a dad to wag his finger at his kids and say, do you know how lucky you are? Blah, 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 blah. It's another thing for the kids to actually read a story about children who had grown up you know, two or three miles from where we were. This is not you know, in rural Africa or Asia or you know, South America. This is in Norwalk, Connecticut and Stanford, Connecticut, kids who had never lived anywhere except Section 8 housing or kids who didn't know either of their parents, uh, kids who had never been inside a house. I still remember my daughter saying, how could that be, Dad? And I said, well, because they've only lived in government housing. Wow. They've never actually been in a house. So... By exposing them, and this is something I, to be candid, I did sort of on purpose, so I didn't have to lecture them. They could just read this. They developed an appreciation for how lucky they were. And the final thing I did, which came out of uh, a period of my life where I was teaching ethics to seventh graders, uh, is talk to them a lot about the fact that we don't necessarily deserve what we have. We have what we have, but a lot of it is due to things far outside our control. When I used to teach ethics to seventh graders at King Low Haywood, which, again, we had a lot of wealthy kids, I'd say, how many of you 
Okay, I see your show of hands. How many of you uh, chose to be born in America? And no hands would go up. I'd say, yeah, but imagine if you had been born and we picked some other countries that are you know, third world countries. It's very different, right? So you were fortunate here, not due to anything you've done. That's just good fortune. So how many of you selected your parents? No hands would go up. I'd say, so you don't have a hand in your financial status at this point. And how many of you selected the brains you have? No hands go up. So this became kind of a, and I use this with my daughter, as I said, a philosophical argument for appreciating that what we have is a function of a lot of things, but one of it is serendipity, the function of the dice falling one way versus the other. So never sit back and think you deserve what you have because you don't. That's uh, that's a pretty pretty powerful lesson to teach to seventh graders. Well, what was amazing is they started getting it. <laughs> I opened up the conversation by saying, how many of you have had ear infections? And every hand goes up. I said, yeah. <clears throat> How many of you chose to be born in whatever they were, 1990 or 91 or 92? No hands go up. I say, so you could have been born 200 years ago, and guess what? Half of you would be deaf. Some of you might have died from your ear infections. So the fact that you're all perfectly fine now is not a result of you working hard or being a good person or anything like that. It's a result of you having been born in America in a certain generation. So, so this is kind of the philosophical basis for um, noblesse oblige, for appreciating that you're, we're all very fortunate. Most of us have a little bit more than we need. So if we do, number one, appreciate it. And number two, think about sharing a little with others who don't have as much. Yeah, that's a... a... That's a wonderful story. Um, going back to kind of your your growing up, um, so tell me tell me about kind of your your college years um, because I know that there's a, there's a little bit of a story there. So where where did uh, where did college begin? Well, I went to Colgate University. I selected Colgate for a very mature, educationally relevant reason. It had a ski hill attached to the campus. <laughs> And as God is my witness, I still remember a beautiful fall day as a high school senior driving down the main street in Hamilton, New York, with my father. And I said, Dad, wait a minute. That looks like a ski hill right on the campus. And I could see my father's eyes rolled back and go, oh, my God, this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> this is not going to end well. So I said, pull over, Dad. He pulls over, and I asked a student walking along. I said, is that a ski hill there? So I was you know, ardent skier. And he goes, yeah, you can take skiing in gym, you can ski from the dorm to the hill, the hill to the dorm, and my decision was made. <laughs> I, however, was not a very mature student, so I got to Colgate, and after two years, I had a compelling 1.6 average, which is not a good average. Uh, I was absolutely unprepared for college, aside from the social side of it. And I still remember calling my father 
to tell him the end of sophomore year, I'm thinking of taking some time off and I'm waiting for him to say, you know, over my dead body or something like that. And instead there was a long pause and he said, I'm not sure your mother and I could tell the difference. (laughs) Because you're very busy doing, uh, for all intents and purposes, you were taking a bunch of time off. It sounds like. Yes. Yeah. I was, you know, I had a motorcycle. I had a girlfriend, I had shoulder length hair and a beard and I had, uh, you know, I was having fun playing, playing some Steppenwolf records, watching easy rider. Is that what's happening? That's That was pretty much exactly it. So <laughs> I, I left and I, uh, started the tennis court lighting company, uh, and you know, purely serendipitously, you know, we had a, a little, you know, kind of an old tennis court in our backyard that we had inherited and, my father said, it'd be great to play at night, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah, I wonder how we could do that. And so he said, well, I have a patient who's an electrician. Maybe we should speak to him. So I spoke to him and lined up some stuff, and I lit the tennis court. And then a neighbor said, hey, can you do that for us? And I said, sure. And before I knew it, I made 20 grand in about four months, and I was rolling in loop. Uh, and I decided, you know what, this is fine, but... Winter's coming, so I got in a car, drove out to Colorado with one of my buddies, started working building condominiums in the mountains of Colorado at Copper Mountain. It was the first year Copper Mountain was open, and uh, about early January, I got involved in a conversation with a a young publisher at a local newspaper that was one of these raps we had long into the night that was really kind of nourishing and fulfilling and just gave me a hell of a buzz. And I thought something about that felt familiar. And I remember, yeah, that's the way it felt in philosophy class at Colgate. So the light went off. I called up Colgate. I said, can I come back? And they said, yeah, but as long as you plan on doing better than you've done before. (laughs) So uh, I had been sleeping in my car for the winter, and uh, I was determined that that would not be, I would not have a lot of car sleeping in my future. So I thought college might be useful. So I came back, and I uh, was now quite a bit more mature, Uh, finished up Colgate, did uh, pretty well, uh, majored in philosophy, then went to Brown University to get a Ph.D. and become a philosophy professor. Now, what, just thinking about those experiences you had doing the the tennis court business and then going out to Colorado, you ever look back on that and say, you know, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be where I am right now? Absolutely. I, um, you know, the the tennis court lighting business was interesting in the sense, and again, this is all in retrospect, it was an example of, you know, a certain element of my nature manifesting itself, which was, let's just do it. You know, don't question it. Let's just do it. Kind of going from, you know, thought to action without worrying a lot about, you know, did this make sense? How hard was it? Et cetera. Um, which is sort of a useful orientation for an entrepreneur to have. Um, the going out to Colorado was, you know, one of those things where, on the one hand, if any of my kids had said they were doing that, I would have said, it's got to be crazy. 
On the other hand, you know, went out there, had some great experiences, and then uh, you know, a light bulb went off. And I don't know that the light bulb would have went off if I had done something differently. Now, the, um, the, the idea of thought to action is something that I definitely want to talk about. Um, but you, you graduate from Colgate, you go to Brown, you, you, you pursue, pursue um, a doctorate. Do you, do you finish the doctorate or do you enter the workforce at some point? Good question. When I got out of graduate school in 1978, the market for white male philosophers, you needed a microscope to get. And I mentioned white male philosophers because the departments were historically a bunch of white men. And they were just starting to realize, you know what, we, we might want to have just a little bit of diversity in these departments. Uh, and when I got out of Brown, um, the only person in my year who got a tenure-track position out of the gate, I think, was a black woman who was also smarter than any of us by orders of magnitude. Uh, I, was order, I was offered a, and I'll never forget this, they called them terminal positions. I guess you get the position and you die. <laughs> but a one-year terminal position at Mississippi University for women. And I thought it was one of my friends you know, pulling a, a prank on me, you know, me being a, you know, a Yankee from Connecticut, you know, Mississippi, Mississippi University for Women, really? Uh, I didn't take the position, and I didn't finish my Ph.D. I ended up with a, a master's and then a term that people from a certain period of time who pursued Ph.D.s will know called an ABD which stood for all but dissertation. Yeah. So what, what's the next step? You, uh, you, know, you obviously don't take the job, uh, which sounds glamorous, by the way, the, uh, <laughs> the Mississippi, the job down in Mississippi. Uh, so what would you do? Well, I, <clears throat> I um, continued to look. I And this was in the fourth year of grad school. I was teaching at Brown, but Brown wouldn't hire their own PhDs uh, if you're in humanities because it was sort of an unwritten rule. If you're in the sciences, they might, but not humanities because humanities were not going to make them any money. Uh, and I got in a bad skiing accident. And while I was in the hospital uh, with a lot of morphine running through my system, my grandfather called and said, what are you planning on doing uh, after graduate school? Because I had told him he also has a Ph.D., uh, or he finished his, actually. But, uh, and I told him I wanted to teach, but there were no teaching jobs. And he said, why don't you come work for me? I, I have a, an ad agency in New York. He, he was an entrepreneur who had a number of businesses. Uh, but he said, the ad agency might be good for you. And I had no clue what an ad agency was, did, I'd barely ever heard of it, aside from knowing my grandfather had one. Because I, I was a country boy, for the most part. I only went to New York City you know, to go to the Museum of Natural History with my father. So I went down to my grandfather's office, had an interview, which we already knew what was going to happen. He said, here's the deal. I'm going to hire you, but you're going to get paid less than anyone, and you're going to work longer than anyone. And if those conditions are acceptable, consider yourself having a job. 
So I said, okay, I can do that. And uh, I had a job for $11,000 a year as a junior account executive at the ad agency. And how long did that did that job last? That job lasted about two years. And then I went to the client side. Their largest client was a, uh, a brewer called Champale, and the head of marketing there had kind of taken a, a shine to me. And uh, he said, why don't you come help us develop new products? So I went to Champale doing new product development and then uh, became a brand manager for a uh, product that I developed called Golden Champale and uh, was there probably for about a year and a half. And it was while I was there that I had sort of an epiphany about what philosophy had actually done for me. And and this is a fun little story I'll never forget. um, I was still technically part of the ad agency, and so we had a big meeting, and I was still a kid. I didn't know anything. Um, And sitting around the table was a bunch of old guys. These were guys all, you know, 45, 50, and I was, you know, 25, 26, and uh, it was, you know, the chairman of the company was there, the CEO, all the big wigs, and I was there basically just to observe. At the end of the meeting, the uh, CEO said, well, let's go around the room. I'd like to hear what you guys think we should do. They were making some big strategic decision, and I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, this is not going to end well. But I had at least jotted down some of the assumptions people were making, and as a philosopher, I had you know eight years of pretty rigorous training in philosophy, basically how to argue for a point of view, how to build arguments, how to attack arguments. So I built a little, very basic little syllogism. If this, then this, this, therefore that. Um, it's a little piece of logic. So they got around to me, and I had nothing to say except this. I said, well, it sounds like you're all agreeing on X. And they said, yep. And I said, and you all said... Uh, if X, therefore Y, and yes, and it's also therefore, you know, it implies whatever. And they all looked at each other, and I'm waiting for the counter-argument, because in philosophy, particularly in grad school, there's always a counter-argument. Someone will say, Mike, that's a good point, but have you thought about X, Y, and Z? And it sounds like you're also presupposing J. And, you know, we, it was very vicious. So I'm waiting for the counter-argument, but it doesn't come. And the CEO of the company says, well, we can't argue with that. Anyone have a different point of view? Nope. Can't argue with it? Let's do it. And in that one split second, I sat back and I thought to myself, this philosophy stuff works. (laughs) And the rest of my career was basically spent giving arguments. What? There was a period of time, if I remember correctly, where you left you left the, the corporate world and started the limo company. Was that around this time or was that a different time period? Uh, that was that was right afterwards. I uh I was starting to get a little bit of a uh, a little bit of antsy at the uh sort of the big corporate structure. I was commuting from New York to Trenton and one of my pals 
said to me, hey, you want to start a limousine company? And I said, well, I've actually never been in a limousine. Uh, but I can help determine whether there is a market for it, and if so, how we can penetrate that market. So he said, okay, well, let's start a business. And I said, well, I don't have much money. He said, well, he was he had gone from rags to riches in the real estate business. And you know, when you're 27 and all of a sudden you have a pile of money, you say, well, let's, let's figure out how to spend it. So I said, well, I'll be the... You know, the marketing brains here, and you need the money, and let's do it. Coincidentally, I had mentioned at the same time to my grandfather what my plans were, and he kind of shook his head, and he said, mm, not sure I would go down that path if I were you. And I go, why? He goes, well, the limousine business, very dirty business. And I remember saying to him what had to be one of the most naive things anyone has said in the 20th century. Uh, I said, because I had done a bunch of interviews with people in limo business, and I said, Grandpa, now I researched the industry. I saw no evidence of, you know, dirtiness there. And he burst out laughing, and he said, look, do you really think you would have? Do you think these guys are going to say, by the way, we're criminals? <laughs> and, uh, but I was a, you know, 25, 26-year-old master of the universe, and my grandfather was just a 75-year-old guy who had started and built multiple companies, successful philanthropists, and a wise man. So why should I listen to him? Of course so could, not, yeah. I could take my own sage advice. <laughs> so did your grandfather, by any chance, turn out to be right? <laughs> Well, he, he sure did. Uh, so we started the business, and uh, in about a year, we had built it up to a, the number three limo business in New York. It was a distant number three behind a company called Fugazi and another one called Davell. And uh, then our cars started getting every Friday night. We're the first, actually, the first tenants on what now is called Chelsea Piers. Oh, sure. Uh, well, back then it was Pier 62, and when we uh, took our space there, there was 5 million vacant square feet, kind of dilapidated. The only residents there were hookers and uh, a couple of uh, Coke dealers. Um, well, they usually go together, don't they? Yeah, they really, they really do. <laughs> so... Uh, our cars, every Friday night for like two or three weeks, one of our stretched limos would be vandalized. Windows smashed in, TV smashed in, liquor bo bottle smashed in. So um, we, we had a friend who was part of the New York City government, and he said, let me connect you with uh, Robert Morgenthau's office. And here, Robert Morgenthau was the DA there. So we went down there and described what was going on, and the detectives kind of said, you know, this smells a little funny. Uh, uh, we think you're probably uh, getting uh, preyed upon here by some bad guys. And then we got a call from somebody saying, uh, we want to talk to you about your business. And uh, we want to talk to you about the money you owe your accountant. And we didn't know our accountant any money, but these guys fabricated a, a bill. I still remember for $17,000 and, so we decided to uh, set up a meet. 
and that's the, we're getting advice now from the detectives and the district attorneys. Well, they put uh, bugs in our office. They had a little observation van with a little periscope on it, <clears throat> and we set up a meet with the bad guys, and the bad guys show up, and I was expecting... I don't know what I was expecting, but I was expecting something out of the movies, you know, tough-looking, scary-looking guys. And two of the most nondescript guys walked into our office, and they were also two of the most chilling guys I'd ever met. And uh, we had a conversation with them that was being recorded by the DA, and, you know, we're asking whether you guys, you know, do you break our legs if we don't pay you the money, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they couldn't have been nicer. Uh, but at one point, they looked over and they... I asked my partner, and he said, you're from Rye, New York, right? He goes, yeah. You know, we were out there the other day on uh, driving around John Jay Place. And I could see my partner's face started turning white, which is where his parents live. He said, yeah, I looked through the window. We're looking around for property there. The lovely lady there. Said, yeah, I think it was, number, I forgot what the number was. It was my friend's home. Yeah. It's your mother. She looks like a lovely woman. And then they went back to their conversation. And afterwards, these guys left. The detectives, who I still remember their names, Mike Lopez and Jay Lyman, came in holding the cassette of the recorded conversation in their hand. And one of these guys said, they could be elected mayor on this thing. There's nothing good in this that we can use. And I'm looking at my partner, Peter, thinking, what kind of mess have we gotten ourselves <laughs> into here? <laughs> so... Anyway, the net-net was that we, uh, quote-unquote, sold our business to a gentleman named Pat Testa. And if you do a little bit of uh, Internet research, you'll see that Pat Testa turned out to be an enforcer for, I think it was the Lucchese crime family. He was gunned down in a fusillade of 9 millimeter bullets, I think, 15 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Uh, ironically, he was... We were turned on to Pat Testa from the guy who built the limos, a gentleman named Jack Schwartz, who had a company aptly named Dillinger Games. <laughs> and I just saw yesterday a little article about Jack Schwartz and Donald Trump. And Jack Schwartz uh, was part of, uh, I guess, an offspring branch of the Jewish mafia in New York. So it was a, uh, let's put it this way, we were a bunch of, naive college boys from the suburbs who ended up having our business school served to us by a bunch of mafiosos. <laughs> well, I guess the, the moral of the story there is listen to your grandfather. That's, uh, that's exactly the moral. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that was a lesson that uh, and my grandfather, to his credit, never said, I told you so. Uh, and But when I told him I was abandoning the limousine business, he smiled and nodded and said, I think that's a good idea. So then, uh, between the limousine business and Greenfield Consulting, what what happens next? Are you are you thinking of your next your next move? I mean, you you clearly by this point have, I'm guessing, came to the realization that you are you're you are an entrepreneur by heart. I mean, starting back with the the tennis courts, uh, lighting business, and then Colorado and and your experiences in the in the limousine business and starting that and building that up. Is are you thinking at this point going back to work for quote unquote the man, or are you thinking about what you're going to do next? Well, the, the truth is, um, 
I was bruised and bloody and beaten and feeling like crap. We, you know, we'd just been forced out of business by the mafia, basically. So um, I picked up the phone and called uh, a guy named Gene Riley, who had a, a big qualitative research shop. He was one of the sort of founders of the the industry, you know, years and years ago. And I had been trained at his place. And I called him up. I said, Gene, you know, interested in having anyone come work for you? Because at this point, I was broke, and I was uh, pretty much hit bottom, and needed to earn a living. So he said, absolutely, come work for me. So I went there and uh, very quickly developed a... uh, a good reputation, and because it was for me, this was very natural stuff. I was a teacher, I was a philosopher, and doing focus, and I was curious. Doing focus groups felt like, you know, it felt comfortable, it felt right. Uh, I also developed a relationship with a man named Hollis Brace, who was then the he was a client of ours. He was the CEO of Molson Breweries International which was based originally in Montreal and then in Toronto. And Hollis kind of took me under his wing and gave me a whole bunch of business. And about a year, year and a half into my relationship with Gene Riley, Gene and I had been talking about me essentially taking over his business. Because he had a business, he had no heir apparent. Uh, he had a, you know, a nice son who worked there, but he was not at all entrepreneurial. And I had been talking to Gene about the fact that it was quite bizarre that we were in an industry called marketing research, and none of the practitioners had a clue about what marketing was. They were researchers. And the more that when I was at Gene Riley's, I twisted the dial on sort of folding marketing thinking into our deliverables, the more clients seemed to you know eat it up and enjoy it and come back for more. So I said to him, this is, you know, this is really the direction we need to be going. He said, great, you know, let's make a deal for you to come in and take over my business. I'm going to step back. Gene regrettably died very quickly from cancer. Uh, as we were having these discussions, his widow didn't seem too interested in going down that route. So I left and hung out my shingle. And the funny thing is, uh, you, know, you leave, and I left assuming I was going to get a ton of business from Molson. And my first year, I got not one dollar from Molson through a variety of reasons. Uh, and Molson eventually became a very big client of mine, but I left believing I was going to, you know, this is going to be my, the fuel for my liftoff, and nothing happened. So, Business ended up coming from places you'd never expect it to, you know, pure serendipity. I'm sitting on a plane and having a conversation with a guy who was one of the senior guys at First Boston who says, you know, this is interesting stuff you do. Why don't you call this other guy? And Because First Boston had never done any market research. So I get them. I get Price Waterhouse. A bunch of, bunch of things fell into place, and Greenfield Consulting was off to the races. And then, um, you know, you start, obviously you start hiring people. Um, what was your hiring model? I mean, what, what were you looking for in your ideal candidate? I mean, now your name is on the, your name is on the door. Um, 
so what and and everyone you hire obviously is a reflection of you so what's the what's the model who do you want to bring in well, I, I, this time I was going to listen to my grandfather's advice. My grandfather used to always say, don't hire anybody who doesn't have muscles you don't have or isn't smarter than you. So my approach was I was only going to hire people with way better resumes than mine, which, and I was looking for resumes with marketing credentials. So that wasn't that hard to do, actually. <laughs> I had good philosophy credentials, but... As a marketing guy, they're fairly junior. But I was quite fortunate because the ad agency world was being turned upside down by Martin Sorrell originally. This was when agencies started being bought, uh, and there was a lot of uh, outplacement activity going on. Let's put it that way. So... I was able to, uh, my first focus was hire people who were marketing thinkers. And in the days when I started Greenfield Consulting, the ad agencies were the real bastions of marketing brain power, not the client side. That changed. Uh, but back then it was the agency account guys who were the real marketing thinkers. So I started hiring agency account guys and I'm a huge believer in giving somebody pretty much unlimited upside. I also believe that there should be a direct connection between work and reward. And I also hate black boxes when it comes to compensation. So I wanted to create a model where these guys would come in at a base salary, a decent base, but where the bulk of their compensation was going to be variable, it was going to be incentive-based, and at any day of the year, they would know exactly how much money they had made or were making. Very simple. And it, it wasn't unique. It was unique to the market research industry and certainly to the qualitative research industry, but it was a model that existed in other industries. So what I did was, something my grandfather also said. He said, listen, most of the problems in business have been solved, but they may have been solved in a different industry than yours. So go look around. So all I did was a best practice steal from industries that essentially had these kind of models for their sales guys, but applied it to consultants, qualitative research consultants. And I was able to attract really senior level guys you know, senior VPs, exec VPs at global ad agencies, people who have been handled, you know, major, major accounts, and gave them the ability to solve marketing problems, make lots of money, have control over their lives. They used to ask, how much vacation do I get? And I'd get, well, take whatever you want. Just understand that the biggest cost of your vacation is not going to be the hotel or the airfare your restaurants, but it'll be the commissions you're not making on the jobs you're not doing. So it transferred power and control to the employee, you know, control of their time, their ability to earn more money or less money as they saw fit, 
it enabled me to hire people who, for life stage reasons, maybe didn't want to work quite as many hours. I was able to hire uh, folks who wanted to spend more time at home with their family, but were perfectly comfortable, you know, traveling, you know, two days a week. So the comp model was a huge contributor to both attracting great talent, retaining great talent, and building a business. Well, yeah, I mean, if I think about those those days, and uh, I, I mean, I came across uh, JCG back in 96, 97 when I started working for Moda Media, um, and you guys were our pretty much our go-tos for anything qualitative and later, of course, um, online quantitative, but um, your people didn't leave. You know, they, 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 they were, they were, um, there was not a lot of turnover in your, in that organization. Yeah, we were immensely fortunate. I mean, I think, you know, we used to say there are kind of three legs to the retention stool. You know, the first was the work and for people who like solving marketing problems, particularly, you know, the kind of agency marketing guys I got, this was paradise because they didn't have to deal with a lot of political crap. They didn't have the sort of Damocles hanging over their heads uh, worrying about who was going to buy their ad agency and whether they'd have a job. So the work itself was great. The compensation was another piece of it. That's the second leg of the, tool, uh, the stool. And these guys were making more money than they had made before year after year. And they knew what they were going to get. It wasn't, you know, at the end of the year you get a secret bonus and hopefully it's, you know, what the boss likes me and he gives me a lot. Uh, and the third leg of this retention stool was the culture. We had a very uh, relaxed, fun, high-energy kind of quality-focused culture. It was a, uh, a jeans and tennis shirt kind of place. If you wanted to get dressed up, you go ahead and do that. Uh, but it was, you know, culturally, it was a very, very uh, relaxing, fun place to be. And we treated everybody the same, you know, circling back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, I used to tell people that our company is like a car. And if you think the engine is more important than the wheels, good luck getting to the station without the wheels. <laughs> and I use that to make sure that these big company, you know, very successful, highly paid honchos who were coming in to work there understood that they were no more important in terms of how they were going to be treated than the administrative assistants or the receptionist. And that was very, very important to me. We tolerated no, you know, attitude, big company BS, or, you know, differential treatment based on your position in the company. So Greenfield Consulting flourishes. Um, you've, got, you've got great people, great marketing thinkers. They're hungry. Um, they're working hard. The business is growing. And then the Internet rolls around and you have, if I remember the story correctly, a guy who washed dishes come to you with an idea. Exactly. Um, 
he was a sophomore at Fairfield University, a guy named Hugh Davis. And I still remember he walked into my office on Riverside Avenue, and he, and I was you know I would talk to anyone. And he said, uh, "Hey, there's this thing." And actually, he walked in with one of our moderators because I think he was a little nervous about coming in and telling the boss this about this crazy thing called the internet. And he walks in with Jonas Wagner. And Jonas was a senior guy at our company. <clears throat> and Jonas sat there and next to Hugh, and Hugh said, there's this thing called the Internet, and uh, we can it enables us to interact with people remotely. And, you know, none of us knew what the hell that meant. And he sort of described it, and he said, so we could do focus groups with people, and they don't have to all be at the same place. I'm listening to this, and then I asked him if there was any increase in cost doing it with, you know, five people or ten people or a thousand people, and he said no. And in that split second, a light bulb went off, and I said, you know, why don't we focus on quantitative research? because that's where the real advantage here is going to be. If we can build a panel of a 1,000 or 10,000 or a million people, and it doesn't cost any more to do research or get answers from a 1,000 than it does to get answers from 10, wow, we've addressed one of the big challenges in quant these days, which is, you know, cost more and more money to reach these folks. And the, the irony, Mike, is those in those days when we did a quantitative survey, the uh, compliance level was like 98%. That's right. People were so like, oh, this is cool. I just did an Internet survey. You know, that doesn't exist like at that level now, but the uh, it was amazing to see the, you know, the, the percentage of people who would respond. The response rates were insane. Well, I, I know that they are not like that anymore. No. <laughs> but so so now you've got Greenfield Consulting, which becomes, you know, the most successful research company, qualitative research company in North America. You've got Greenfield Online, um, which was certainly a pioneer in both online quantitative but also online qualitative. I remember you guys had the, the Mindstorm project. Uh, product and and uh, which was a very early stage sort of threaded discussion asynchronous platform but time goes by and um both of these businesses are you know you're there you sell them um which is what eventually entrepreneurs do they they have an exit strategy how did you know when it was time to to sell well uh i would like to say it was sheer brilliance but there were a couple of events that uh, led me down this path. And, and you know, what, one little sidebar, you know, we're talking about being entrepreneurs. <clears throat> it was not until maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago uh, that I actually ever used that word to describe myself. 
And we never thought about that. We were just people, and, and my buddies who started businesses, most of my friends are entrepreneurs, we were just people who did stuff, you know, started businesses. We never, there was not this cult of entrepreneurship and, help, you know, startups and all that stuff. We just were people who had an idea and did it. Um, the reason I sold the online business was a very, very basic and straightforward reason. I was running out of money. And it was, you know, when you're a uh, first into the market, you need deep pockets and some patience because, you know, we were we were having experiences where I still remember a day where I went to Colgate-Palmolive and uh, also met with P&G, and this was in probably 96, and both of them said, you know, this Internet thing is interesting, but it's really, you know, we need a mass medium. This is really for techies. You should go to Microsoft. They both wanted to send me to Microsoft um, because they... You know, back then it was not totally clear that the Internet was going to be a mass medium. Uh, so I was swimming upstream, and I was spending all of my own money on this business. Uh, I, you know, there, was no, uh, there were no investors. There was just me, and I was funding it, and it was costing more and more. And I was investing in it because I believed in it. So... In spring of 99, I was thinking, you know, I don't have a lot of gas left in the tank. I've got to sell it. And uh, I was having a conversation with a, uh, some folks from Deloitte who were financial planners and mentioned this to them. And they said, oh, we have an investment banking arm that does this kind of stuff. So I met with a gentleman named David Clark. He took the assignment and... Uh, we put the, put it on the market, but then because serendipity once again sticks its nose into everything, we were in the final week of getting bids in for the business, and my old friend, my partner from the limousine company, called up and said, "Would you mind if I use a conference room there? I'm meeting a guy I'm doing some business with. He was in the real estate business, so." He shows up with a gentleman named Joel Mesnick, and we're in the conference room, and uh, my secretary comes in and says, you, you might want to stop by and say hi, because Peter and Joel are in there. And so I walk down and meet them, and Joel uh, sits and he, says, he points to the wall and he says, what's that? And I had a framed Greenfield Online t-shirt <laughs> on the wall. I said, oh, that's a, you know, it's a business we have. We're in the process of selling it. And he goes, and all of a sudden you could see his whole demeanor change. He says, he starts focusing really intensely on this. Says, tell me about this business. And I said, yeah, sure. And, you know, I start describing it to him. And this is on a Monday. I still remember a Monday. <clears throat> and he goes, you haven't sold it yet, right? And I go, no. He goes, I'd like you to come in and present this to a uh, private equity group we represent called Insight Capital Partners. And I go, well, we're you know, really pretty late in this process, Joel. We're getting what they call best and final offers. And he goes, we can move quite fast. So that was a Monday on Wednesday. Went into the city and presented to these guys. And I still remember halfway through the presentation, 
And at the table was a guy named Burt Manning, who was the chairman of J. Walter Thompson, or he may have just stepped down. He was one of the partners. And there was a guy named Jeff Horing, who was the head of Insight Capital Partners. And halfway through, Jeff stops and he says, <clears throat> I've heard enough. And I'm kind of going, whoa. And he looks over at us, and next to me was David Clark, my investment banker, and he goes, I think we're going to screw up your process. And I'm like, screw up my process? That doesn't sound like a good thing. And I start getting agitated, and David leans over and goes, no, that's good. Just we'll talk about this. So we get up and leave, and David, we're standing by the elevator, he says, you're going to get an offer from these guys. And sure enough, the next day we get an offer that uh, changed my life. Wow. So, and so that's how I that's how I ended up selling that. Uh, and the irony was, people say brilliant timing because we sold this literally at the peak of the first internet bubble. And I say brilliant timing. The reason I sold it then is because I was running out of money. Ironically, had I been more successful and had a bigger bank account, I would have held on to the business for another six months, twelve months at which point it would have been worth a tiny fraction of what I sold it for. Yeah. I sold Greenfield Consulting Group uh, about two years later uh, due to another uh, event. This was a horrible event. It was called 9-11. For the entire history of my company, from 83 when we started it to 2001, the company had grown every quarter. We've been incredibly fortunate. In September of 2001, uh, when 9-11 happened, starting at September 12th, you know what happened? No one could fly. And in our business, we had to fly. So that month, I lost half a million dollars. First losing month in history. And what I realized is didn't matter how good I was, how great a leader I was, or bad a leader, how great a team I put together, how wonderful our clients were, were. I realized then that there was stuff that was so far out of my control that could affect my destiny. Uh, and I'd never, never thought about that before. So a little light bulb went off. I said, you know what? This is, this is uh, a signal. And uh, went back to Deloitte, went back to David Clark, and put the company on the market, and uh, ended up selling it to Millwood Brown. Well, in a way, you did think about it before, but you, you were in a in front of a classroom of seventh graders talking about it. I mean, kind of a different scenario, but things outside of your control, things you didn't have any control over. Absolutely, and I. Uh, I was very fortunate. I was fortunate for uh, on both of those sales. And Miller Brown turned out to be a wonderful partner. So, if you, I mean, we're we're um, we're kind of at the end stages here. But if you if you had to think, if you had to reflect back on your life and kind of put yourself in the shoes of that, um, you know, for lack of a better term, that dropout, that guy who who left Colgate the first time around. And did a little soul searching. Um, if you, if you yourself today could whisper something into that young man's ear, what would you say? Ooh, 
you have an easier question? <laughs> it's the one I got to end on, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say I would probably have, I have to say more than one thing. I would say a couple of things. The first thing I would say is trust your instincts. They're there for a reason. The second thing I would say is follow the divine ratio, which means two eyes, two ears, one mouth, which means you should look and listen four times as much as you talk. And the third thing I would say is don't look back. And those things uh, the second thing I can't say I've always followed, I try. <laughs> I have trusted my instincts, and I have never looked back. And uh, I'm now seven years into my next startup, and uh, I can't complain. So what, uh, as we wrap up, what's the, give me a elevator pitch. What's the next startup? Well, the, <clears throat> seven years ago, I started a program at Colgate University uh, called the Thought into Action Entrepreneurship Institute, where we mentor student entrepreneurs. It's totally non-academic. It's all about you come with an idea, we will connect you with alumni entrepreneurs and help you make it happen. It's about what we euphemistically call the craft of doing, making stuff happen, essentially applying critical thinking to giving birth to companies. Uh, and then uh, that's been going for seven years, and it's going quite well. We have uh, touches about 20% of the Colgate student body, one way or the other. Wow. And uh, the final startup uh, is a little fund we have. I started with my partner, Will Papworth, about a year and a half ago uh, that invests in early-stage startups, essentially, you know, taking some of the skills we developed over the last seven years at Colgate and actually investing money in these companies. And so that's uh, my retirement. My, the most unsuccessful thing I've done is tried to retire. <laughs> it sounds like it. I, and the, the final thought on that, Mike, is when people say, are you retired? I say, no, I'm rewired. Well, that's a great way to put it. Well, uh, Andy, I want to thank you so much for taking uh, taking the time to uh, to talk with me and share your stories. And uh, I know I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot out of this uh, this conversation. So I can't thank you enough for your time. Oh, the pleasure is mine, and uh, I hope they stay awake for the good parts. <laughs> I do too. Well, that's my interview with Andy Greenfield. I think his final words of advice were pretty powerful. Always trust your instincts because they're there for a reason. Listen twice as much as you speak and never look back. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Hope you stuck with it. And if you have any comments, please feel free to share them with me. Mike at UncorkingAStory.com. Until next time.